Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of the Popular Culture Podcast on the New Books Network, and I am here with Jennifer Keishan Armstrong to talk about her new book, Seinfeldia, How a Show About Nothing Changed Everything. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Yes. So I'm hoping before we get into the book, which was wonderful, if we could have you start to talk about a little bit about yourself and your background and what brought you to doing this research into Seinfeld. Sure. Um, So I am. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of the Popular Culture Podcast on the New Books Network. And I am here with Jennifer Keishan Armstrong to talk about her new book, Seinfeldia, How a Show About Nothing Changed Everything. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Yes. So I'm hoping before we get into the book, which was wonderful, if we well, could you. have you start to talk about a little bit about yourself and your background and what brought you to doing this research into Seinfeld. Sure. Um, so I am from the suburbs of Chicago and grew up a huge TV nerd. Um, I used to like get the TV guide when you would get TV guides in the mail and you know, sit there with it and like circle all the stuff I was going to watch and then read all the articles for the week. Um, So it was there from the beginning. Um, And then I went to Northwestern for journalism school, was a newspaper reporter for a while back when we had some of those. Um, And then kind of slowly transitioned. Um, You know, I was always interested in writing about pop culture back as far as high school and college I was working for local newspapers, kind of going to like city council meetings and things. But on the side, I would always be going to, you know, concerts to review them or interviewing the people who were coming through town on music tours and that sort of thing. Um, You know, had some weird like side things, but eventually made my way to New York to be in magazines and worked my way into a job at Entertainment Weekly where I was started out as an assistant um, and worked my way up to, I can't remember what our, you know, senior writer or something Mm -hmm. like that. I was there for about 10 years and ended up really covering television mostly. You kind of have to pick a major when you're there. It's really hard to keep up to the degree you need to, to be, to have that job. Um, on all the, you know, on music and TV and movies and everything. And I was really lucky because I ended up kind of covering television during the rise of television, essentially. You know, we, we've through through the last decade or a little bit more, it seems like TV has really come to be the predominant cool medium that we all watch and we all talk about and we all nerd out about. It used to be movies. Now it really is television. And so it's been really fun. And through that kind of gained an expertise, particularly in television history. And when I left Entertainment Weekly, it was to write a book about the Mary Tyler Moore show called Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted that came out a few years ago. And then so then Seinfeldia, the book that I have out now about Seinfeld, is the follow up to that. And it's wonderful. When you were talking about TV Guide, that reminded me of, and reading this reminded me of that time when you would like wait Mm -hmm. every week to watch television and what's going to come on and everyone sits around the television at the same time to watch Seinfeld or whatever it might be. So can we talk a little bit about the book and get into the book? And you start at the beginning and it's as much about, what's interesting to me about your book is it's as much about the writer's as it is about the cast itself. So can you talk sort of about that structure of the book and why you chose that focus on the writers as opposed to focusing on just the characters? Sure. So there's a couple things. Um, First of all, I've always had this 
thing where, you know, back in my Entertainment Weekly days, too, when people are like, who is the coolest interview you've done? And I'm like, you know, Carlton Cuse, the co-creator of Lost, you know what I mean? Like, I've never, it's never been, like, the stars that people want to hear about. Um, <laughs> they're kind of like, oh, I don't want to talk to you anymore at this party. So that's part of it is I just always... I guess it's not a surprise that writers enjoy talking to other writers, even if they're in other media. So that's part of it. Part of it is, uh, to be incredibly honest, you know, just access. Like, you know, writer, the writers are going to spend more time talking to you and telling you stories than the stars. And they've also been interviewed a thousand times, the stars. Um, so there's not a lot that's new there. So all those things sort of end up coming together. And it's true of both my books that there's a huge focus on the writers. And I think it's all of those reasons. I mean, the first book that I wrote um, about the Mary Tyler Moore show, there was a specific, there was a specific emphasis on writers um, because I was interested in the fact that they had so many female writers in the 1970s, but it turns out like, you know, the writers of Seinfeld are super interesting to talk to too. And again, not a surprise. They're funny they tell great stories uh, because they were writing for one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. And they really did say a lot of them that, you know, no one's ever talked to us about this stuff because they just went straight to the stars all the time. And these guys really know the stories behind the stories. Right. And that was interesting that you talk a bit about, and I'm hoping you can expand on it, this idea that the show almost never got off the ground. And then they were just sort of, flying by the seat of their pants. Nobody knew what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, literally no one knew what they were doing to some extent, even to, you know, up to the very top at the very beginning. Um, it's not like Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld had any idea how to make a TV show. Really? You know, they had no, what I, you know, obviously they did know they, cause they did it, but they had no actual experience. Um, Jerry had been exclusively doing stand up before that and Larry was a stand-up comedian. He also worked briefly at the show called Fridays. Uh, he was both on the air and a writer on that show. And it was like, that was just basically Saturday Night Live, you know, another network's attempt at, attempt at it on Friday nights. But he, that doesn't mean he knows how to make episodic television. So literally no one knew what they were doing. And then they hired mostly people who had not worked in television to write. They hired a lot of stand-up comedians. And one of their biggest writers who stayed with the show for most of its run and wrote some of the greatest episodes was Peter Melman, who before writing for Seinfeld had been primarily a journalist. So no one knew. And I think that actually ends up contributing to why it's so different is that they didn't know how you were supposed to do it. Therefore, they did it a totally different way. Right. And it seemed like in the later years when people would come in who were supposed to know what to do, who had worked on shows before, they were like, what's going on here? Exactly. Exactly. So the network seemed to, I think it's interesting, and you mentioned before, and you talk about it in the book, that it's this sort of golden age, this rise of television. And so everybody was like, sure, I'll read for this show or sure, I'll do this. It's not going to go anywhere. And the network didn't even think it was going to go anywhere. So what was it about the show that allowed it to sort of get on the network and then have that staying power? Yeah, it kind of snuck in. Um, it's And it's just a bunch of flukes, which I'm always fascinated by. I feel like every TV show success story ends up being a series of flukes, like most things. Um, and in this case, yeah, it, it really, it was basically a rejected pilot. You know, they get a bunch of pilots, they try them out, they pick the ones they're going to make shows of. This was not one of them. But they liked it, like, just enough that they were like, let's, let's like, throw it on the air in the middle of summer. Um, which is, like, barely putting it on the air. But, you know, why not fill a half hour when no one's watching TV anyway? So they put it on July 5th. So it's the day after a national holiday. It's in the middle of summer. No one's watching TV. It's one episode that's going nowhere. So, like, that's not great. Um, but then one of the executives named Rick Ludwin liked it just enough. And he was in charge of late night and specials. And he was the one who had initially recruited Seinfeld because he was often recruiting comedians 
late night and specials. You know, do you want to do a special, you know, that he sees them on the late night shows. And he really liked Jerry Seinfeld in particular and saw some potential in the show. So what he did is for is the next summer he got rid of one Bob Hope special in his budget, which would be four or two hours um, to make four half hour Seinfelds. And that was really the key because when they ran those four episodes, they ran them after Cheers reruns and Cheers was like the thing at that time. Um, That was the, the big dog. And it turned out that Seinfeld was keeping and sometimes even building on the Cheers audience. And once they saw that that was happening, they were like, Oh, maybe there's something here. So then they gave it a 13 episode season the following year. So this is a very slow build. It's like one, four, 13. And we're still not at a full season at that time, which would be 22. Um, The 13 did well enough that they finally got, you know, a big boy uh, (laughs) order the following year for 22. And that's really when it starts to take off. So it was a really slow build. Right. And it's so fascinating. When I was reading, I was thinking about this because Seinfeld started, I feel so old. When I was... (laughs) Like when I started college, Seinfeld started, and I remember like watching the show, but it wasn't until like I was done with school that it really became like Seinfeld and everyone was watching Seinfeld and talking about it. And one thing you also talk about is these characters that it creates, right? So by the time we get to these, the full season and they can do this, we have these crazy characters. And so can you talk a bit about those, maybe some of your favorites and why you think these characters, even if, for instance, the soup Nazi appears in one Mm -hmm. episode, why there's so much staying power and why so many people are attracted to them? Yeah, they're really great at creating these ancillary characters, secondary characters, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of like a world building thing. That's to use a geek term now. Um, I think it's part of why people love the show so much is it feels like a complete universe in itself with its own rules and its own characters and all of this stuff. Um, So, yeah, we have we have characters like the soup Nazi and Jay Peterman and uh, Jackie Childs is one of my favorites. Personally, the lawyer who is, um, you know, right out of the O.J. Simpson case, which was huge at the time. Yes. (laughs) And, um, you know, they just so... Newman, Putty, you forget that they're... You can't even remember that they're secondary, in a sense, because they just feel like they're just there. The parents, um, the Seinfelds and the Costanzas, like, what incredible, fully realized, like, they feel like they just came from their own show. That's really the key is like these characters, they gave them the same amount of attention to detail as their main characters. And then they got just incredible people to play them as well. And I I think that the the secondary characters are, are huge in so many ways on Seinfeld. Yeah, that's one thing I appreciated about your book is it brought back those characters to me, right? There's certain I love Jerry Stiller, and so he was always one of my favorites. And so when he was on Seinfeld, I was so excited. Um, But I kept remembering all these other characters, and I'm like, oh, that's right, that person or this person. And Jackie Childs reminded me of watching the O.J. Simpson trial and watching all of that. And so your book really brought that back, and so I really appreciated that and thinking, oh, I remember that character. Yeah. And Joe Davola, and I forgot about him. You know, I love love Joe Davola. (laughs) I mean, I happen to know Joe Davola, the real one. Um, so when I started this book, I was like, okay, we're like, I am going to tell the Joe DeVola story finally to the world because I just, it's so funny. Like the fact that he, you know, he's a very nice, sane, normal, um, TV producer. And he gets this character named after him, named literally crazy (laughs) Joe DeVola and spends the rest of his life explaining to people, um, that he is not crazy. Uh, and having people kind of scared of him, and that's that has its advantages. So, always does. And that's <laughs> another great thing that I loved about your book is that you talk about this beautiful mesh between reality and the the world of Seinfeld, and how they brought in reality, and how they brought in these real characters and real places. So, can you talk a bit about that? 
And that idea of, you know, using real names or using real places or George works for the Yankees, those kinds of things. Yeah, I think, you know, a huge thing that that accomplishes is it makes it feel not only like its own world, like I was just talking about, but it also allows people to feel like it's part of their their own world. You know, it's it would be different if George was working working for the New York you know, Fliberty gibbets instead, um, if they made up some name, um, even down to the brands, I was talking to somebody about all of the brands that showed up, um, from real life, like junior mints and Snapple and all of that stuff. Um, and I think that that actually has a huge effect too. This is my personal thing, but I feel like there's that the junior mint episode doesn't feel the same if it's not an actual candy that you actually know from going Mm -hmm. to the movies yourself. Um, so everything from those tiny things up to the real people who a lot of the characters are based on or get their names from or anything like that makes it feel like you can actually kind of interact with the show from where you are. Um, it's such a, it's a funny thing, but I think it really makes a difference when you're a fan that you can go take Kenny Kramer's bus tour the guy who Kramer is based on is really named Kenny Kramer and he still gives a tour of sites from Seinfeld in New York city. And it is delightful. Um, there was an entire episode that kind of made fun of this because he started it back when the show was still on where Kramer has his terrible bus tour of, um, sites from Jay Peterman's book (laughs) because of complicated reasons that are too long to get into right here. Um, but they, so they made fun of it from the beginning and used it, but it, his his tour is is quite nice. It's not on a terrible, you know, broken down school bus, um, and it's really fun. But it it makes people able to like interact with the real Kramer and then go to the soup Nazis place on the tour and see Tom's restaurant, which is really the exterior of Monks, like it really allows people to feel like they're part of the show then and they love that. And then they can recite the lines and they can be with other fans. So I think that that's a huge part of kind of continuing its appeal. Right. It can replay this nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that idea of world building because I too am, you know, that geeky nerd who, you know, and makes me think of like playing games where you can really build a world and really become a part of that universe. And Seinfeld was one of the first shows to do that in the way that it did. So in your book, you also talk about, um, so we have Seinfeld and we have Larry David and you mm-hmm. have Larry David sort of behind the scenes doing this. And I love this. Larry David is so interesting because you, you capture this idea that he wasn't really sure that he could keep doing this and keep doing yeah. it. Right. He kept, I can't write, I can't write 22 episodes. I can't write two episodes. Right. Um, I think that that's actually even, you know, the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized it's, it's sort of the key to his success in a way. Um, we're always told we're supposed to be super confident. Um, and, you know, I think he's pretty confident, by the way, in his actual abilities. But I think it was partly that he didn't even care or want to. You know, he didn't he wasn't invested in the idea of a TV career. It's not like he started his life and was like, this is what I'm going to do. It was a fluke that had happened to him, that he was cast into this role. So it gave him a lot of power that he was able to say to them, like, all right, I'll just stop doing it. You know, if, if they were like, well, we're not going to run the Chinese restaurant episode, he'd be like, all right, I guess I'm done. And they're like, all right, fine. <laughs> run the Chinese. You know, it, it really gives you power if you don't necessarily want the thing. So I think part of it was maybe even a little, I don't want to say an act, but like, you know, it was a little negotiation tactic. Like, all right, I'm just not going to do it. I don't care. I'll go back to New York and do stand up again. Um, and, but it allows them to, to end up doing these nine seasons, nine years. And with him constantly going like, eh, I don't know if I have any more in me. And they're like, all right, what do you need? Um, and he even stopped for a while. And people are always like, you know, asking, you know, they kind of want that to be nefarious or that he, you know, he and Jerry had a falling out because he left two years before the show was over. But I really do believe that he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm over this. You know, I didn't think I was going to even do it from the beginning. Now I've done it for this long. It's a huge job. It's incredibly draining and I want to go do other things now. And so he did. He just has this confidence in himself and power to just do what he actually, you know, wants or wants to do. And that gave him a lot of power. 
Yeah, and that's one, because you bring up that, and that seems very much the case, right? In reading your book, it doesn't seem like he and Jerry had this big fight, and then they were done. It seems like he was just like, I got to do something else, and then they had to figure out what to do without him there. Exactly, which was a huge job, by the way, and I, I, I know that they appreciated him always, but I felt like they truly didn't understand how much he was doing until he left and it took like dozens of people to make up for the loss of his job like everyone was working so so hard after he left because before he left they just he just held it together and he made it look easy so if an episode fell through at the last minute he'd be like i'll whip something up and he'd just like go away for a few hours and come up with some great thing um if an episode fell through when he wasn't there anymore they were like, oh, crap, we have to come up with an episode from scratch, and that's not as easy as he made it look. So it really was, it was a huge job, and he was doing an incredible job at it when he was there. I think, you know, he also, like Jerry, is very into working at his peak and being aware of when maybe he's he's going to dip below that and probably had pretty good instincts. I mean, his last episode, I believe, is the one where Susan dies. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know. Like, what kind of mic drop is that? Like, you can't beat that. He's like, he's like, I just killed a character and made all of our main characters not care that much. I'm going to go now. Um, so, you know, I think he just he just felt like he wanted to go do other things. And if you watch Larry and Jerry interact now, if you go watch like the comedians in Cars Getting Coffee episode with Larry, it's very clear that they're incredibly good friends with like almost a crazy amount of like communication going on between them, even without words. It's really lovely. And I don't know. I just, you know, I, I totally buy that these people all kind of got along and were just brilliant and that there were not huge nefarious things going on behind the scenes. Well, then that's what it felt like that there wasn't like, if you wanted to find the scandal, you probably couldn't, right? Yeah, if they're really what I mean, some people don't, you know, it's like the thing. Here's the thing about Larry, too. He he just messes with so many things. We were just talking about like the way he could be like, ah, maybe I won't do it anymore. Well, he also has this thing where he's like, I'm a jerk, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like he puts that out there. He had a whole he has a whole show about it. Right. So it's not like you can suddenly find out, oh, actually, it turns out, you know, Larry David's kind of a jerk to work with. It's like everybody's like, yeah, I've watched his show. So, you know, he puts it out there. And I mean, I think he's actually not a jerk jerk, Um, but he is kind of that, you know, he gives people a hard time and he's cranky. But by putting that out there, it makes it so that no one can say anything about him because they're like, yeah, that's how he is. Of course he's that way. It's almost more scandalous to be like, actually, I think Larry's maybe kind of a good person sometimes, you know? (laughs) (laughs) He is really, really nice. He's not, I I can't watch Curb Your Enthusiasm because it's so painful to watch all the time. It's like a train wreck, this train wreck, right? Yeah. he does. Yeah, he's just, I mean, that's, they actually said, some of the writers said that, and you can see this blatantly happening on Curb, that, you know, during the run of Seinfeld, when he wanted a storyline, he would just come up with some weird thing to do. And he'd like go out and do it just to see what happened. So he could write about it, <laughs> which is like, of course, of course, that's what he, you know, mm-hmm. and that's sort of where that curb persona comes from is this idea of like, what would happen if I said the thing that no one wants to say in this situation? That's, that's what Seinfeld is. And that's what curb is. Right. And that's what's sort of this beauty of Seinfeld too, is that we're in this era right now of reality television and we need to see everything instantly. And over and over the writers were talking about how they would just do something in real, you know, this would happen to them in real life, right? We show up at Larry David's house to pitch something and you go throw mm-hmm. up and it becomes an episode. And so it's sort of taking that step, that real life step without being in reality television and trying to make something happen. They just, watch it happen right Right. and then they write it so that's better like that's that's what writers do that's what real life writers do is they take stuff that happens and then heighten it and i think the genius of seinfeld really is that they take these everyday things because it was almost a rule that things happen you know that the storylines come from real life but they would take the things that happened and then like heighten them to make them i'm trying to think of how to say it right but to essentially depict them as as dramatic as it felt in the moment. So like when your rental car, when you make a rental car 
you know, reservation and then they don't keep the reservation. They don't hold the reservation, as Jerry says. That feels really dramatic to you. But when you tell the story, it's not that good because it's just like, well, I thought I was going to get a rental car and I didn't. They kind of then exaggerate these situations and dramatize them to the like, what what's the worst that could have possibly happened in that scenario? And to kind of spin them out and make them feel they're like, yes, that's what it feels like when I don't get my rental car mm-hmm. um, or when I ha- when I don't understand what somebody said to me and I end up wearing a puffy shirt on national television. Um, that's how these things feel to us, even if they're not as dramatic as depicted on Seinfeld. And that's that's why it's brilliant. Yes. And you feel better that they've done it because, you know, you would do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you just relate so hard. And I think that's why people continue to go back to the show. Right. And one of the things you talk about, too, is this idea. Like, what's interesting to me is that they're working really hard the whole time. I mean, they are, it seems that they're putting in way more hours and overtime than they would if they did the show, quote unquote, the right way. Right. And so can you talk a little bit about that and what you learned and what you sort of talk about in your book about this idea that like for nine seasons, they really were like, it's it's crazy. Like I always say when they started explaining to me how like, because I, you know, I just was with the writers and I was like, tell me how an episode would happen. You think that's like a normal question, but it's so elaborate. And I was like, how did you ever even make one, much less 180? Um, it's just insane. So there's a couple things. And one is that they, the writers all worked kind of alone. Um, they worked in the office, but they each had their own office and they work alone or with their part, their designated partner, who is their writing partner. And that's it. There was no writer's room where in a normal show, you'd go into a writer's room, you know, riff out a bunch of jokes together and then maybe in and outline a, a show together and then maybe send somebody off in the final moments. You know, here's here's the whole outline. It's basically done. Just go write it up. That's not how they worked. They really worked individually. They had to get a storyline approved for each of the main characters by Larry and Jerry before they could even outline. Um, Larry actually yelled at one of his writers once because he the writer came to him with an outline. He's like, why'd you outline that? We're not doing that. Um, <laughs> so you don't even outline before you get the four stories. Get the four stories. And that was hard because you'd have to, like, catch them in the hallway or, you know, in their office and pitch it to them and get approval. And so you get four. That's a lot. Usually most traditional sitcoms in the 80s would have, like, an A and a B plot line. That was, that was the traditional thing. This is A, B, C, D. Then they'd outline then they'd have to work on the outline with Larry and Jerry. And they said, this is fascinating to me as a writer that often Larry and Jerry would take that first outline and kind of squash it down. So they'd be like, you know, the, the writer would think here's my 22 minutes of television that I've outlined. And they'd look at it and be like, yeah, that's good. I think that's more like six minutes now go make the rest of it. So they really compacted things down, which is why those shows feel so dense. Um, They had ways of, showing that something had already happened you know instead of having a whole scene about something it would be like let's just put a line in the next scene that indicates that that already happened um so it's really good writing kind of stuff and then eventually they'd get to the point where they could really actually write the script then they'd write the script turn it in larry and jerry would then take it when they were both there together take it in the office shut the door and then sit and rewrite um, and I loved this idea. The writers said they often would just sit outside the, the office while, the, the, while their script was being rewritten. And a few pages would come out at a time uh, for the assistant to type up. And it was like this big moment to see. Because like, part of you wanted to see how it got better when they did it. But part of you kind of wanted it to be so good that they didn't have to do a lot. So <laughs> um, I don't know. It's just like so fascinating in so many different ways. I just feel like they made it the most dramatic process possible instead of the easiest it sounds like that's awesome though but as a writer i was so intrigued by this idea this sort of the lone writer and then you Mm -hmm. wait and you know and let someone revise so so you talked and you mentioned this at the beginning about um looking at the mary tyler moore show and the female writers and there weren't a lot of female writers on seinfeld there were not. <laughs> but I'm really interested because I love Elaine. I mean, yeah. as a character, especially when you think about the early 90s and she's like 
going out of their bet because she's, you know, she sees John right. F. Kennedy, you know, and the sponge worthiness and this great writing about this, like, really strong female character doing things that female characters shouldn't be doing, right? Yeah, exactly. I was, I, for obvious reasons, you know, I'm coming off a book that's about female writers. Um, so when I come to this and it's like almost, almost all white Jewish guys, you know. Uh, I had to ask the question because I, too, love Elaine very, very much. And what I loved about this, um, would it be wonderful if they had more diversity on their writing staff? Sure. But it was the 90s, and this is the way it was, and it was a brilliant show. And so I asked a lot of them just, you know, what was – how did you think about writing for Elaine? And a lot of times – you hear from male writers in general, like, oh, it's, you know, it was so hard to write for a female character. It's like, as if we're like this completely <laughs> other, you know, like as if they're trying to write from the perspective of a tree or something, um, you know, and instead, what was really wonderful is that most of these guys said, you know, they were constantly trying to collect story ideas from their own lives because that was part of the deal is that they were supposed to be using stuff from life so what they would really do is just keep reams and reams of lists this thing you know i had trouble at the rental car company i couldn't understand what this guy was saying this happened in the taxi this happened when i was trying to find a parking you know they just had lists and it wouldn't say necessarily kramer is going to do this it was just lists of ideas that happened to them and they said that they would just and this was kind of per Larry's suggestion that, you know, okay, just give give story ideas to Elaine. Like, doesn't really matter. Sometimes you just had to give a story. You needed a storyline for somebody to pick one off the list. It was as simple <laughs> as that. They had enough to deal with without this, too. So what that ends up doing is having them not really worry about writing for a girl. They're just writing for a character. And so that means that a lot of the time, Elaine was essentially getting storylines from men male writers lives and not making a big deal out of it and that i think ends up making this kind of character that we hadn't seen before simply because they didn't worry about they were like we were just talking about they had so much else to worry about the last thing they needed to like sit around and ponder was how to write this female character and they certainly weren't going how are we going to make a great feminist character they were this was definitely not on their minds so they were just trying to get through it and they'd be like great let's give the you know barking dog annoying barking dog character thing to elaine i just picked that out of the air just now but i just realized that even giving her something like that there's this episode is it it's a dog right yes yes where this dog is barking and she's like basically considering killing this dog um because it's keeping her up at night even something as simple as that, not sex, not anything else, like not fretting about, oh, a woman and her feelings and maybe she wouldn't. We don't want a woman who would consider killing a dog like that's just not very attractive. They didn't worry about it. And so we get Elaine and they did, you know, have moments, for instance, where initially in the contest, they considered not having Elaine in the contest, you know, and mm-hmm. the initial my understanding is that, you know, Larry's initial conception was like, okay, well, we have to, you know, have to figure out what Elaine's going to be doing while the guys are having this contest. And then one of the other male writers said, what if she's in it? And they were, and then Larry was like, okay, well, then we have to come up with, like, how she's going to get out. Because, like, then you can't, if you could put the woman in the contest, you can't have her win. Um, so <laughs> they had to come up with, like, okay, how are we going to knock her out of the contest? And then she gets the best one, in my opinion. Like, she gets the best reason, which is that JFK Jr. is in her aerobics class. Um, also, the most 90s reason of all time. Um, oh, but, yes. Right? And it <laughs> ends up being one of the great parts of this. And then it bleeds into even the Virgin. And, you know, he ends up, you know, there's all kinds of stuff with mm-hmm. J- JFK Jr. happening. Um, so it's really, it's it's so, it, it, that's why I think we ended up with this great, character in Elaine so that by the time we get to episodes like Spongeworthy um, it just makes sense you know we're not even batting an eye about the fact that we have a female character like interviewing 
sex partners <laughs> on television. <laughs> like, that's crazy, right? But, and hoarding birth control. So. And that becomes, right, this key line is that, you know, is he sponge worthy? Is, you know, right. that people still use now, whether you need I to love it. Like, I, lo- I mean, what a great, I mean, just saying sponge worthy, like, what? <laughs> What a wonderful <laughs> phrase. They have so many. I, I was a little obsessed with, I think, one of their great writing talents is they have a really great ear for language. And, like, so much of the language in Seinfeld just sounds beautiful. <laughs> it's yeah. like, sponge-worthy is just a good word. It's just it, a sponge. Why a sponge? I actually found myself explaining the other day because it didn't occur to someone. They were like, I don't understand what sponge-worthy has to do with, like, birth control and sex. And I was like, well, her thing is discontinue whatever. They're like, but why does that have to do with taking a birth control pill? I was like, oh, I see. <laughs> see, we used to have sponges. And <laughs> see, <laughs> like, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, but all of it, like the yada, 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 there's all these terms that you know and that you appreciate and that idea that you can say it. And if someone knows what you're saying, like that you talk a bit about in your book, the not that there's anything wrong with that, right? And when you hear someone say it, you know. Yeah, it's it's two things. Like one of them is it allows us to talk about things that we maybe not wouldn't necessarily have a phrase for. So something like not that there's anything wrong with that is is saying a lot of complicated things. Right. It's like about liberals in the 90s. I think we've advanced a Mm -hmm. little since then. But like, you know, liberals in the 90s, guys kind of feeling like on the one hand, they don't want to be perceived as gay and on the other hand want people to understand that they think it's fine Mm -hmm. if someone else you know so it's this very complicated feeling that they've boiled down to a little phrase on top of which then that gives us a way to talk about that but it also is just this kind of what i've found happens now is like this call and response feeling of like you sort of say that say this stuff in conversation partly to see if there's someone else in the room who gets it and and then you know you're like you have a special connection like oh you got it that that's a Seinfeld thing and you know what the right response is to that so it's almost like a religious thing it's like it's like when you go to church and say peace be with you also also with you you know um, that you know you you have this recognition it's kind of beautiful it's it's like a little moment of human connection you know mm-hmm. yes it's one of those things where you're like this reminds me of a Seinfeld episode or you say, yeah. Mm -hmm." And you talk a bit. So part of the book is sort of giving us the rise and the fall of Seinfeld and that insight into Seinfeld, but your title Seinfeldia and this idea that Seinfeld is this sort of place and that people are drawn to it. So towards the end of the book, especially you really talk about this idea of how Seinfeld has shaped how we watch television, but also how we sort of interact with one another and you pick some of these people who have been really impacted and influenced by Seinfeld. So can you talk a little bit about that, the people you talk to about mm-hmm. their and you start the book with that at the baseball game mm-hmm. as well, but Yeah, yeah, I wanted to really like my, one of my grand ideas, you you get you get into your own grand ideas when you <laughs> write a book. Um, you know, was was that I wanted to write a complete history of Seinfeld and to me that meant you start at the beginning when it's conceived and you go all the way up till now. Um, because if you just spend a few minutes online, you'll see that there is a thriving Seinfeld culture um, that that is its own thing. You know, that to me was what was really interesting. Like, it isn't just the people are like, yes, there's memes and all that, the standard stuff. But it's almost like people are continuing to make things and make culture because of Seinfeld. Um, there's a guy who made a virtual reality thing. I don't really understand how this stuff works, so I, I can't use the technical terms but he basically made a thing where you can go if you put the headset on you can go be feel like you're walking around jerry's apartment he like recreated jerry's apartment in this thing and you can walk around and he like painstakingly like figured out you know how high the the stools need to be and all of this crazy stuff um there's entire there's like twitter accounts and twitter wars essentially um (laughs) over seinfeld turf um, we have two big ones, which are modern Seinfeld. That's like the standard. Many people know about it, where they sort of pitch ideas for what would be happening on Seinfeld if it was on now. Um, a lot of it is just what these characters would do with things like cell phones or Yelp or Tinder or online dating or, you know, any number of things that we have now that we didn't have then. 
Um, and the beauty of that is that it just shows how wonderful those characters are. Like, so fully realized, you can plop them into anything. And you understand immediately what they would do there. And it's funny. It's there's. I can't even totally explain why. You know, when you don't want people to explain why things are funny. It's just funny to imagine. Like, I just did one. I think I tweeted yesterday because I was watching the guy um, climb up Trump Tower. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, why did I? Why I couldn't? I just couldn't shake this feeling. I was like, why do I feel like if Seinfeld were on today, that would be Kramer? <laughs> like, I just I don't know why he would do it. That would be the episode. But like, why or how? But I just feel like if someone was going to climb up Trump Tower, it would be Kramer. Um, so it's just funny to th- see you laugh. It's funny to think about that. Um, and then there's this like other account, which I'm not going to get into because we could spend like a whole hour and you'd probably still not understand what I'm talking about. But there's an account called Seinfeld 2000 that if you have a very weird sense of humor, I recommend you look into. Um, he basically started his Twitter account to mock the other Twitter account. Um, the modern Seinfeld one because he was like why like okay great they have cell phones so what Um, you know like and you just have to look at it he's and he's made a lot of other things as a offshoot like he wrote an entire ebook about the characters in current day breaking into the Apple store on Fifth Avenue it's fascinating Um, he's made videos he's he made Seinfeld emoji. He he. A lot of the kind of crazy things you see. Have, oh, there's a Junior Mint game. I really recommend that. Um, go online, just look up Junior Mint game, and it's a little game you play online for free. And the whole deal is just to get Junior Mints into the body that's like below and kind of moving around. Um, it's amazing. So there's a lot of this stuff that go, that's going on, and that's just from one guy, the Seinfeld 2000 stuff. It's like there's so much stuff out there. There was a street artist. This was one of my favorite finds. There was a street artist a few years ago who made a reproduction of the Rochelle Rochelle movie poster, the fake movie from the show, and put it up in real life at a an abandoned movie theater in New York City. And the Internet went crazy. Like everybody was sharing pictures of this thing. And he eventually ended up um, being in touch with the woman who modeled for Rochelle Rochelle. And she, her husband had been looking for a poster, a good re- reproduction of the poster. And because of that, I because I had interviewed the street artist, Jay Shells, um, I got in touch with the woman who was the model for Rochelle Rochelle. Her name is Sheila Holton, and she lives in Southern California. She's an accountant at a motorcycle company. Um, she had coworkers who were like crazy Seinfeld addicts, and she had she never told them that she was Rochelle Rochelle. I was like, their head would explode. It's like, I know it's just my little secret. Um, she's really lovely. And you know, there's just so many weird, I, there's something about this show that creates its own weird extra dimension. Which is like, and so the question becomes, and I'm sure you've been asked this before many times, but like, would this work today? Like we have these people trying to make it work, but would this show with, four white main characters with with basically almost nothing off limits who yep. are really irreverent in many many ways would that work in 2000 I think it would be a lot different I honestly and yeah people do ask it cuz it isn't like that's the thing about that's why modern Seinfeld is so interesting it's like this very succinct form that ends up bringing up a bunch of questions if you really think hard about it um I think there's a lot that they would do with technology because it's really a comedy of manners and if anything brings up manners, it's, you know, every, all the technology we have now and all the social media. And you can imagine the things that they would explore that would be fascinating, I think. Um, on the other hand, would we have a show with four white main characters? No. But that's just a very recent development. That's like the last year. Suddenly, all, all of a sudden, we're finally like, oh, no, no, we wouldn't allow that. Um, but that's it's taken a long time <laughs> right. to get here. Um, would Would they be able to say and do some of the things they did no um it would change and i think a post 9-11 world period end of story is different um for the show not just because it's in new york but especially because it's in new york and like life is a lot more serious now um we were we were i mean obviously all the same issues existed but we weren't talking about them and and everything feels so incendiary now that it would be fascinating to see them deal with some of this stuff, but I think they would have to do it in slightly different ways. And I don't know what those are. If I did, I would be, you know, making the next brilliant 
sitcom on television <laughs> instead of writing about the previous one. Um, I do want to mention, though, I don't know if you know this, but there is just this past week, this thing online, um, a guy wrote essentially a spec script, like a fake Seinfeld script dealing with 9-11. Oh, interesting. Um, which is super fascinating because of the fact that I've been, you know, I almost felt mm-hmm. like, I was like, I've been running around talking about this and this guy just did it. It's incredible. Um, and if you, I haven't read it like in detail yet, but. But it's there. He, he wrote it like it just happened. And oh, now they're going to deal with it kind of thing. And if you put them in this situation, you can, you you start to see like, oh, Kramer would be selling dust from the site and like, which is terrible. <laughs> I hate even saying it out loud. Um, that's the point is that they're built to deal with kind of almost anything. Does that make it okay? I, you know, I have no idea, but it's a really interesting idea simply because I think the big moment was not, you know, they got off the air a couple years before nine 11 and the tenor of the world changed. We have terrorism. We have create, you know, we have mass shootings. We have serious problems to deal with about race. Did they deal with some of these issues sort of on the show? Yes. But I don't know how in this environment you make that stuff funny, but I would love to see them do it. Mm. I'd love to see smarter minds than mine do it. (laughs) Well, I think part of it's that having those writers, right? Having that strong group of writers and figuring out how, I love how you said the writer is going to make that real life situation better, right? Yeah. Uh, And one thing, too, that you mentioned a bit, but this idea of because you talk about technology and today, how how we watch this show differently. Right. How Seinfeld was coming at the beginning of the Internet and we had these small pockets of people putting stuff up on the Internet, but they weren't doing what we do in 2016 when we watch TV. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I I also totally nerded out on like I found some of the guys who made the first Seinfeld FAQ, um, which is when in the olden in the olden yes. internet days <laughs> um, when you couldn't have a bunch of like it wasn't very organized it was just like here's some text on your screen. Um, one of the things you do is like the first thing we had is message boards where you could just talk to each other, but then the second development from that is they made these FAQ pages because people kept asking the same questions in the, you know, in the discussion groups. And so this was a way of saying, like, if you want to talk about those, if you need some basic primer, go there, then come back here. Um, So it ended up being this repository of nerdy information, essentially, is what it's like a it's like a Wikipedia page before we had that. Now, look at what we have. Like, it's funny that to think about a time. So, and now we've got like guys making virtual reality versions of Seinfeld's apartment and stuff. Um, yeah. So this, I feel like it was the beginning of this different way of watching a show, which was to nerd out about it. It wasn't like you just watched it and then, you know, other sitcoms before it, you'd watch it and you'd almost like forget it happened. But like the minute it was over, you wouldn't want to go discuss it. You, you wouldn't want to go read a recap of silver spoons <laughs> You're like, what did it mean when Ricky, you know, like, no, um, that's, not, that's not how we watch television. But with Seinfeld, because it made it smarter, it gave it layers. You know, I, I can imagine now, you know, people going the day after the Chinese restaurant episode and being like, this is like Beckett and this is this and this is like, <laughs> let's link to that and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, there'd be all of the stuff. And there are people now, I mean, they're. Uh, I know at least AV Club, the website, if not some others, went and recapped. Like they, you know, they went back and had somebody recap all the episodes the way we recap shows now. Um, and in fact, David Sims, who did that, I talked to him about it a little bit, and he said he took so much flack. Like people are still so emotional about Seinfeld that like he'd you know write a recap and people would be like you're wrong and blah 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 you know all this stuff um they get really worked up so it's clearly it tapped into this other way of watching tv where you want to relive the episode talk about it quote it make memes about it there's it had I think it goes back to the world building and the quotable stuff like it had layers and that's Later, we end up, you know, shows like Lost and Mad Men and all of this stuff that almost require 
you almost had to go read a recap just to be like, what did I, what just happened? Um, someone else explain it to me, please. <laughs> what was that smoke monster? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, obviously, you know, Seinfeld wasn't, you know, we could understand it. That was sort of the beauty of it, but it had layers and it lent itself. I think it, what's brilliant is it didn't know. Like, it's not like Larry David sat down and was like, you know, the internet's coming. So I better just kind of figure out how to make a show that's like really good for the internet. Um, but it is really good for the inter- internet, it turns out. And I think that's why we see it perpetuated so much to some extent is that it's almost better. It's more made for now. It was before its time. Um, and it really presaged, I think, a lot of the ways we watch TV now. And it really set the stage for, like, I think of, like, you can just sit down and rewatch Seinfeld, right? Like, shows like The Office and things like that, that have this really, like, without Seinfeld paving that way, you wouldn't have been able to do those things. Yeah, the the anti-hero type, or, I mean, actually, Michael Scott's a great example, because it's like, you know, he's not Tony Soprano. Right, right. Um, he's a lot, but he's a lot closer to, like, the Seinfeld people, where it's like, you know, normal normal-ish um you know people you might actually know in most people's lives just not exactly perfect right exactly so do you have a a list of top like three to five episodes or moments (laughs) or do they change every day i say that's what i always say is people are always like i know it's probably impossible but what's your favorite episode and i always say like well if you look at my interviews you'll see me saying like a different answer like by the hour um and i just go with that i'm like here's the one i'm thinking about right now and i'm also by the way i'm like I'm just on a loop, like I'm rewatching on Hulu, like over and over, essentially, while I'm doing this just to like keep me refreshed. And there's still stuff where like I watched some yesterday where I was like, oh, right, this one. I mean, because they're just some that aren't as memorable. But I really like the puffy shirt. I just there's something I feel like that's that would happen to me. We all have these certain Seinfeld things where you're like, oh, no, that's a specific like I am the person who will be like, oh, yeah, uh huh. When I when I don't understand what someone's saying and I don't want to get into it. I'm just like, Oh yeah. And the next thing you know, you've agreed to do something that you did not want to do. Um, I love that. I love the shirt itself. It's so amazing. And um, I love, it's one of the few times when I'm really like into a Jerry line in delivery, which is, I don't want to be a pirate. Um, I love that one. The one I talk about a lot is um, the Marine biologist. Mm-hmm. I love that episode. And it's mainly because of that ending monologue the sea was angry that day my friends is (laughs) one of my favorites i definitely have a few elaine episodes i love particularly i feel like spongeworthy is just such a like that's her star moment right i'm sure there are others but that feels like elaine's big moment and so i love that and i also just i mean this is like almost lame to say but i you know the contest is probably the most perfect episode like it is the most it is peak Seinfeld you know it is it knows what Seinfeld does and it's doing it all perfectly so I really like that one too so we have talked a while so can you tell us what your next project is what are you going to do next I actually can it's uh (laughs) sex in the city ah so we're staying in New York Yep. Yep. <laughs> getting, getting close, actually. It was like it was like I started out far away, and then it was like New York, but but filmed in LA. Now I'm like, no, let's. I don't want to move anymore. I don't. I don't ever want to leave my apartment. I'm just going to do it all right here. Perfect. And you probably can, right? Yep. Exactly. <laughs> fun. 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 Well, is there anything else you want to share, or any other thoughts you have on Seinfeld before I? I think, no, I don't think so. I think we we talked a lot, so we're yes. good. Yes. Well, Jennifer. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate having you on the show. Sure. Thank you. 